there was an obvious opportunity with COP26 coming potentially in November of uh, this year as originally intended that there was going to be a, a push on it um, on the green investment side um, I think now that COVID's happened um, you know we've got we've got a chance to build a far cleaner a more resilient economy Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academia from all over the world and it will explore the hottest topics across the energy market. It'll be hosted by various experts from Aurora and will give a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Feddersen, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And on the show today, uh, we'll be discussing how the UK's largest utility is thinking about what the UK needs to do as we come out of COVID-19 to get the economy going and to decarbonize the energy system. Uh, My guest today uh, is the CEO of SSE uh, PLC, Alistair Phillips-Davies. Welcome, Alistair. Thank you, John. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, and Alistair, uh, many will know, is, is I think the longest serving uh, utility exec in the UK, or certainly listed utility exec in the UK, and probably one of the longest serving in Europe, I would say, probably not quite the longest, but, but, but the Southern European CEOs seem to be in place for a while, but, but among the young, longest serving. Well, well, hopefully I'm still feeling young and, and, and don't tell my new chairman uh, as and when we select him, just in case he <laughs> wants to get rid of me or change me, because I'm, I'm quite enjoying life at the moment. Oh, good. I was going to say, I mean, you've been in the role since 2013, and it was, I suppose that's seven years, which is long, long for CEOs, but given what's happened in that period of time, uh, you've, you've clearly done a pretty good role in navigating things uh, because uh, not everyone has, 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 has fared as well in a challenging time, I think. Um, yeah, before um, this, uh, Alistair had a distinguished career in business. He's been at SSE uh, for, for a long time uh, and, and probably less well-known. He was a university darts champion uh, as, he, as an undergrad. Uh, do, do you still play darts, Alistair? Uh, not very often, it's fair to say. But if, if, if I, I don't go to pubs much, clearly not at the moment. But if I if I, if I saw a set and had an opportunity, then um, maybe next time I'm in Oxford, we'll uh, we'll go down the pub and I'll bring some darts with me. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, you, you know, no doubt better than me at darts. And is it were you because you were captain of your you were captain of your darts team at university? Was it a and some captains are there for skill. Uh, like uh, so, sort of Joe Root type thing, and some are there because of leadership. Maybe Michael Vaughan type type thing. Were you there for skill or for leadership? You know, was it an early signal of your leadership ability then? Uh, was it all skill? Possibly. I was. I, I, so I I, I played. Um, I did play in one of the varsity matches uh, against Oxford, and uh, and I was treasurer as well for a period of time. So I I, I wasn't the strongest, but I was uh, I was a decent one. I I wasn't I wasn't the last player up, and I wasn't the first player up generally. Okay. Okay. Interesting. It sounds like the the leadership category possibly. Great. So can I get into the first thing I want to talk about is this green print that SSE has recently published for decarbonisation, which I, I, I assume is a bit like a blueprint, but for decarbonisation. Um, 
Can I ask why, why have you chosen now to release it? And the context for me is I've always seen SSE as a company that probably engaged less in the public debates, you know, less than Zendrica, less than some of the other utilities. Why did you feel like now is the time for SSE to put a stake in the ground? I, th- I think we'd always intended to produce something um, and a, a, a colleagues that were in the process of, of drafting our sort of net zero transition plan. We did our, we did our transmission business plan, which was, um, which is essentially uh, a, a network for net zero. And, and on top of that, it, w- it was obvious that there was going to be more and more things coming along. So, so sort of even in a run up to January, February this year, um, when we when we had a clear result at the general election, it seemed like there was an obvious opportunity with COP26 coming potentially in November of uh, this year, as originally intended, that there was going to be a, a push on it um, on the green investment side. Um, I think now that COVID's happened, um, you know we've got we've got a chance to build a far cleaner, a more resilient economy. Um, it, it, you know, it's obvious. I think our workers and a lot of others across the industry have done a huge job in keeping the lights on and everything else, um, and that's really important to you know fundamentally how society works. Trying to live without electricity, I think, would be very difficult for all of us. But now that we've also got a, a huge challenge in terms of uh, bringing the economy back. Um, we felt now was the right point in the cycle to come out with this. Uh, it seems other people are talking about these sort of things. Um, the, the opportunity one to invest uh, to attract relatively low cost funding from uh, from markets to basically create more jobs in the economy directly in our company and similar companies, and also to build more resilient local supply chains, not excluding uh, other people, but I, th- I, th- I think resilience is going to be important going forward. All of those things were there, and ultimately, it's clear to us that investments in low-carbon infrastructure are a real win-win right now. Great. And do you think, do you get the sense, given where we are, and as you say, there are a lot of people who are making similar sounds, I think, of sort of you know, a green recovery, governments talking about building back better. Do you think governments making the right the right moves at the moment to, to, to get on with this type of thing? Or would you have liked to see more or, or, or in particular areas? I, I think government's obviously had a huge job on its plate to, um, to sort out the, you know, the current crisis and uh, everybody seems to be an expert on, um, on, on healthcare and all sorts of things. But we, we have seen, I think a clear signal from government that they're interested in this COP26 is still coming here at the end of uh, at the end of 2021. I think there was a, a an article on the FT earlier this week uh, from the Chancellor signalling these sort of things. It was talking, uh, you know, going back to the 800 million pounds that might be there for CCUS uh, and uh, and hydrogen. Um, we've got you know government pushing forward. I think with the CFD auctions and everything else. So they've got a wide range of policy in- instruments that are getting ready to go i just think we thought it was a time to signal that uh we and hopefully the rest of the industry are ready to have that conversation as we look to exit from the lockdown and live with covid going forward and make sure that we can generate um really good substantial new jobs for people up and down the country Mm. and and it's it seems to me having read it it's a pretty broad document as you say there's the networks there's heat there's generation there's storage uh, it's the sort of thing really only SSE has the 
footprint to have been able to to produce in the UK context? Was it a deliberate choice to be broad and sort of whole of system or or were you essentially reflecting SSE's footprint? Well, I think we wanted to be broad. We wanted to be whole of system. Um, I think it's uh, it's interesting that, uh, and you see this doing uh, doing the current crisis that when people pull together and in the same direction, there's an awful lot that we can achieve. And I think it's important that um, yeah, there's a lot of our businesses in there, a lot of opportunities for businesses that um, that we're certainly involved with. But I think it's about the energy industry as a whole pulling together. Um, uh, you know, that's why we're able to maybe call it a green print uh, and and to look across that whole industry, talk about uh, all sorts of things. You know, roll out of electrification to transport. We're not a car manufacturer. But uh, there are clearly opportunities to roll out charging infrastructure. I think hydrogen is going to have um, a growing and important role. That's further out over the next decade. We're obviously going to see huge opportunities in uh, transportation and heat for electricity to play a role. And there are all sorts of areas, whether it's decarbonisation of thermal, uh, thermal, or whether it's building more and more um, of what we've you know managed to get down to a very low cost. Um, for wind which is obviously providing huge amounts of a generation at the moment so i think um the opportunity to create a really strong partnership between industry and government is important and that's what we wanted to talk about and it really we were giving government the opportunity to to signal back to the industry what it is that they're interested in and what it is that they really want to work on yeah yeah and are you are you getting a sense i mean do you talk to car manufacturers do you talk to others do you get the sense that this is the type of you know document proposal people could start to fall behind you know maybe not exactly the document others would have produced but as a as a way of building consensus and i suppose related to that you know do you do you think a lot of the investment for implementing some of the things you're planning can come from the private sector yeah, so a f- few questions there. So, so we obviously talk to a lot of people associated with this um supply chain people uh car manufacturers um i think what 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 we saw was generally an interest in it i think we've seen support from it even from one to other uh, industry companies as well cautiously adopting some of the uh, some of the positions that we've taken there to make people think so i think it's got a lot of really good traction in terms of what we've seen um it was meant as a thought piece we're not saying we know everything and everything is right but what we wanted to do was make sure that we that we put out uh something that looks close to um, the opportunity to go for a whole system solution. And I think to to your point, I believe there is a lot of money that could be invested here. I think international funds, um, if the policy is right in countries, and and the UK's had a a long history of uh, attracting a lot of uh, investment into the utilities and infrastructure sector for um, the last 30 years plus, then I think with the right policies, the right tweaks to what we've got currently, there's an opportunity to get a lot more money coming in because people will see that there's a, this is a growing business. This is a business that has a real future, um, mm. has a real resonance with the public and voters in, in terms of where they want to take it. So, yeah, I, it, it seems the time to be to be looking at this and getting on with it, and it solves it solves a big problem in society that we still have a climate emergency, but it can also help us uh, help us out of the, some of the issues that we'll have around the economy and jobs.
Yeah. So just to drill into a few specific elements of, of, of the green print, um, offshore wind is central. Why is, you know, I suppose given recent history, government's obviously very supportive. You're probably pushing on an open door there, but you know, offshore wind, I think the perception is it's more expensive than onshore wind. Solar declines are coming. Um, why is it so bullish? Why is the green print so bullish on offshore wind? Well, I think we've seen offshore wind. It's the cheapest scalable technology out there at the moment. So I think it's an excellent, uh, an excellent fit for the industry. In the UK, we've invested over a long period of time, whether it was rocks, double rocks, CFDs, in policy mechanisms that are attracted there. I suspect this is the biggest offshore wind market in the world. Currently, it's certainly the most developed. Uh, we've still got an awful lot of seabed um, uh, and offshore opportunities there. We're, we're sort of close to Europe, so there's opportunities. If you build supply chain here, that you could feed into uh, the European North Sea scene as well. So, it, you know, it looks like the UK has genuine comparative advantage there. Um, so the opportunity to create jobs is huge. And even in these incredibly difficult and challenging times, particularly with, um, with lower prices uh, and things of that nature, we've obviously seen Sea Green um, get away this week. We found a co-investor there. Um, you know, that'll, that'll create 400 plus jobs and, and there's, there's, there's potentially um, a billion pounds of, uh, uh, of value add to Scotland coming out of that project plus across the UK uh, as, a, as a whole we see you know, 50% of, uh, 50% of, the, uh, of the cost of that project um, coming, coming from a sort of UK based supply chain which is something that we obviously want to improve on going forward. Yeah, it's interesting so it's, it, offshore is kind of pitched as this export industry in a sense and yet SSE's strategy so far seems to have been around domestic offshore and, you know, SSE focuses GB and, and, and Ireland. Could you ever see this, and this gets a little bit to corporate strategy, um, could you see SSE playing a bigger role in the global offshore wind industry and making that part of the UK's exports in the same way as some of the other Europeans are? I- I think I think I could. I mean, obviously, the UK at the moment, we've got a, a potential commitment to 40 gigawatts of offshore by 2030. So the opportunities here are huge. Yeah, we, we're obviously calling for more ambition um, to, to continue our leadership position. Uh, but then, you know, we're the only... Um, entirely UK headquarter company uh, that's, uh, that's, that's acting strongly in this market at the moment. So we, you know, we have, a, we have a, almost an obligation to, uh, to lead as a national champion in this area and help build that supply chain. Um, and as we see, you know, there are many other countries in Europe that are doing similar things with auctions. Um, it does give us the opportunity to look overseas and hopefully we'll you know be able to drag along some of the supply chain that's done so well in the UK as well and get them to feed in you know at the least to that very close north sea market and possibly further afield mm. would you so on this would you draw any parallels to hydrogen and cca so so the green print you know espouses support for these technologies they're obviously far less developed then or far less mature than offshore wind but you know you cited the SSE experience of double rocks and rocks and CFDs all the while driving costs down do you see parallels in terms of cost declines for hydrogen and and CCS can can we have can we have much confidence about about this well if if I look back on our experience in the um 
in the offshore market when we first built Greater Gabbard, which was was kicked off in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and that, and then was completed, um, you know, uh, two thousand ten, eleven time. Essentially, uh, the cost of didn't really probably come down for the first five years or so. Um, in that, and it's only been in the last few years that we've seen that acceleration. So I, th- I think uh, when you're building very, very big, heavy infrastructure, the offshore wind market to tell you you maybe need to get, go at it for ten years uh, to get the real significant drops. Uh, we've certainly seen plants around the world in the CCS area. Um, I think we're doing a lot of work now uh, along the east coast, looking at the, looking at the various clusters that we're looking to put together industrial clusters for both generation and, and, uh, and ultimately industrial processes uh, to be low carbon. Uh, and, and I think there are opportunities to do that. But right now, we need to access the funds that government are potentially committed to. Um, we need to have a couple of sites uh, going. Um, I think particularly on the CCUS side, that can happen over the next few years. It, I think it'd be really good to get something um, with, a, with a bunch of UK input uh, and a really good, strong partnership, maybe one uh, or at least one and maybe two um, ready to be announced at COP26 next year. Um, and I, I would really, really push on that. And I, I think we can see prices that are, that are comparable with other, um, with other, uh, other co- sort of technologies, not yet ready to compete with with wind, but it does have the ability to be flexible um, that neither of the other major uh, low carbon technologies are at the moment. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you talked a little bit about domestic supply chain there, and that's something that comes through in the, in, in, in the SSE document. What does that do to, so, so you know, I'm thinking of global Britain and post Brexit and engaging with the rest of the world. Does, so I suppose does the local does the focus on the local supply chain send a send a message that's inconsistent with government policy? Do you think? And I, I suppose just out of interest, is what does local content do to your costs? Were you to say, right, uh, we're going to source this from whoever can give us the highest quality at the cheapest price? Would that fundamentally change the cost of say offshore offshore wind for SSE? I think that's where we sit at the moment, actually, John. Really, you're in a straight auction. Um, as you can tell, that the, the, the last auction round cleared it, you know, around the forty pound mark. The previous one, not that much earlier, was fifty seven fifty. So obviously, we've uh, um, we've knocked twenty five percent off the price, basically, um, to get uh, to get down there or pretty close to that. Um, and uh, to do that, you've had to go out there and just uh, and just favour the lowest cost options. I do think though. Um, issues like we've had recently show that having uh, a more resilient supply chain may mean less reliance on complete global um, uh, global sourcing. Uh, I, I think you've got to use the best of what's out there. <clears throat> you don't want to be precluding people, but I think it, it's uh, it'll be important as we try and build more jobs and more local content and actually an industry that can go forward. How do we attract the investment into that supply chain? Um, does government have to think about having uh, some, not complete, but some preconditions um, about uh, about more localised supply chain? How also do you measure the carbon footprint of those, uh, of those supply chains? How do we look at methodologies for measuring that going forward that might level up those playing fields? Mm. Um, I, th- I think on this, ultimately, I'd favour across industry, government, um, some sort of task force to have a look at it and really clarify what's wanted. Because I think we're, we're often found being 
please be the cheapest at the start. And then as soon as you win anything, everybody's trying to retrofit a whole bunch of other policies from other government departments on top of what you've had. Um, and that, you know, it just makes it more difficult to get these things off the ground. Uh, but they're all valid points. But we ne- I think we need a proper conversation about it. Yeah, and that is not unprecedented. I mean, the the Dutch offshore auctions were competitive. That's a floor price, and the and the the prices went to zero. Uh, and then the government policy was, well, we're not going to go negative, but we're going to um we're going to basically decide who we want to win at that point if everyone's at zero. So uh, it essentially becomes a bit of a bit of bit of a ten, bit of a tender in that respect. Yeah. Um, and they do favour local local content, as I understand it. Good. Um, so we've talked a bit about generation. We've talked about hydrogen, CCS, uh, uh, offshore offshore wind, among other areas. I'd like to focus a little bit on networks. Um, you've advocated. I don't want to get into this in too much detail. Local area energy plans. One aspect of this that I find very interesting is um, electric vehicle charging. So you often hear there's this sort of chicken and egg problem. Uh, you know, people don't want to buy EVs because they've got range anxiety and concern about charging. Uh, the distribution networks can't, or the transmission networks for that matter, can't build the charging infrastructure because there need to be EVs on the, on the grid to justify it uh, with off-jam. Um, what do you, and you appear to be advocating basically get, you know, solve it, solving this by getting the charging infrastructure out in front of demand for EVs. What gives you confidence that that will drive the, the rise and uptick in electric vehicle use? Um, look, I, you're right on the chicken and egg piece here, but I, I, I do think we, we run the risk of falling into the trap of broadband, which is not the place we want to be. Where, where you've got patchy service uh, and, uh, and a public who probably rightly had some, some disappointments with, uh, with, with how that was dealt with. And obviously we can see right now how important broadband is to all of us, uh, for those of us who are working from home or, or, or have been working from home. So I, I think this is an area where you can really drive investment. You've, you've got a couple of cycles of car changes to get people used to this. It's clear the manufacturers are bringing out more and more models. This, you know, there was more came out this year, which is why I try. You know, well, I tried something different. Next year, there's going to be an awful lot more again. Um, so I think the opportunity there is uh, is very, very large. Um, uh, if we want to, you know, decarbonize a whole bunch of transport and personal vehicles to the one where you'd start rather than heavy goods vehicles. So for me, rolling out the infrastructure, you can have um, private and uh, regulated network models. We see that in network regulation as it stands currently. You've got private gas, private electricity networks coexisting with heavily regulated ones. But I think there needs to be a clear fallback on on those regulated networks. They have pretty low cost of capital, um, as we're seeing uh, uh, at the moment. And generally, they they deliver a, a good service. And so I think it's really, really important that we take that opportunity um, to drive that change. And we can build essentially a world-class network uh, around the UK uh, over the next uh, five to 10 years um, uh, and really drive a massive, massive change uh, in this, drive up electricity consumption and significantly drive down the carbon footprint of the company, uh, country, mm-hmm. which is all of which I think is really, really important, which is why we, we said bringing forward um, the end of the um, new uh, petrol and diesel sales by by 2030 seems to us to be eminently achievable and very certainly worth a, a strong debate yeah yeah okay and, but, but obviously you need the you need the infrastructure there in, in advance if you're going to exactly do this. Oh, the, on the um on the 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 network price controls so so 
that's coming up. You know, we, we need a resolution on that coming up. You talk a bit about uh, both the transmission and the distribution. How, how important and time-sensitive is, is T2, the, the T2 price control, which concerns transmission? And which, is it just about confirming a rate of return? What are the aspects that, that you would like to see move forward more, more quickly? So I, I, I think there are um, probably three critical aspects that I'd, I'd call out. Um, there, there's definitely the one about the ambition for investment. Um, so just with what, what, what is currently the smallest transmission network that we have in the north of Scotland, we're talking about a 2.4 billion spend program. Uh, a certain 2.4 billion spend program that would rise to um, just over 3 billion if um, if the Viking wind farm on Shetland goes ahead. Uh, within our document, uh, a network for net zero, uh, we had close to 7 billion of projects there if people were looking to accelerate. Uh, a lot of these projects, certainly the 3 billion, are shovel-ready projects that can go with very, very substantial um, local content in them. Uh, and will significantly add to our ability to deploy uh, low carbon infrastructure across the UK. I suspect across the transmission networks as a whole, you know, you can have way north of 10 billion of shovel-ready projects. Um, The second piece, as you rightly say, is returns. How do we get a fair return? Uh, I think we all know and accept that returns are going to go down. It's just how far down. I think we, we are at risk of um of missing our opportunity here if returns go down too far people will not like them uh we'll see risks uh we'll end up with a sector in the same place as the water sector with good companies um disagreeing with the regulators um about about how uh, how it should go forward and that'll clearly um they'll clearly risk destroying confidence uh, in the investment case so we need fair returns and some of those fair returns go to the risks if people want and we believe this country wants and needs um, more innovation uh, and uh, and uh, sort of looking at things in a different way taking risks on things in order to get costs down then you then you have to encourage people to invest in some way shape or form so anticipatory investment which i think now um, we've definitely seen the regulator talk about it it was it was a difficult one i think last year this year with a new chief executive there coming in and launching um, quite heavily into uh, internet zero um, uh, on his first day in office. Um, I think anticipatory investment certainly there, uh, and you can liken those things to you know, investing in manufacturing vaccine facilities. Those things will take 12, 18 months to put together. Um, if we wait and see what vaccine it is, and then manufacture the facility to do it, that's one thing. If you anticipate that and manufacture the three, four, five big types of facilities you need, you are risking maybe a few billion dollars. But um, but but your chances of generating hundreds of millions of vaccines. Um, once you have one that is successful, quickly is rapidly improved. People have to make the decisions about whether those are the sort of things they want, and it's very, very similar um, in our business. We need to encourage investment that's innovative, that does take some calculated risks to try and really change things and make things better, um, and, uh, and get us to net zero by 2040 in line with what we're proposing. And, and why? Just to follow up on that, why is the investment requirement? that large is i mean is that large compared to history and is this driven by you know decarbonization you, you talked about shetland, the shetland um island offshore is this is this about integrating renewables uh, f- for the most part yeah 
Uh, that, that, that's the bulk of it. You, you, you essentially had a network that 20 or 30 years ago would, would have been focused on um, taking power from uh, coal fields, which where you essentially had coal stations built on top mm. of the coal fields or very close to the coal fields and distributed them around the country. Now you're going to have a network that's, that's, that's far more about um, some onshore to some extent. So, you know, picking up, uh, picking up from sort of remote high high wind uh, onshore sites, but particularly offshore sites. Um, so particularly um, along the east coast of the UK, um, up around the north coast as well, and then taking that power and bringing it into uh, into the big population centres. You've also got the issue about what's the balance on the system as we go forward and we see more renewable penetration. You'll need more technical bits of kit in there to support voltage and provide stability and other things of that nature, basically. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, 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 it is a... It is a you know it's a mini industrial revolution happening within the energy sector, um, but we've got the opportunity to get ahead of everybody else, build up our low carbon infrastructure now, invest for it now, export a lot of those skills uh, later when other countries take that up around the world, uh, and just put us in a you know in a much better position as well going forward, having already done that. Yeah, and I, but to me at least, it's one of the less well appreciated aspects of the energy transition is that. You know, renewables are cheap, but but copper is still pretty expensive. Um, and and uh, you know when we're talking about these 70, 80, 90 percent, 100 percent renewable systems, getting the power to market is just it, 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 we don't see it yet um, because it's easy it's easy for the first few wind farms, but uh, it becomes a big challenge. Could could I ask on that? So so one challenge might be well, hang on, you know, copper is expensive. Do we need? Do we need all of this copper? Don't aren't we? You know, don't we have software and batteries and and ways to manage congestion that don't involve you know billions of pounds in capital outlay? Now, can you know? Can we get people in the in the Shetlands to turn up a you know turn up their hydrogen electrolysis, or can we get people in London to turn down their freezers or, or something like that as a substitute for for, for building more wires? And uh, look, uh, certainly on the distribution side, uh, just building lots of new wires isn't what we want to do. We want to be able to utilise more smartly, exactly as you said, um, what we what we've got. And I think that'll be a really interesting part of the ED two business plan. I think towards the end of ED two, depending on the role that particular things like electric vehicles and electric heating, you may have to put more in there. If we if we look at things like the CCC report, they're talking about a doubling or doubling plus of energy consumption. You're not going to ship twice as much energy by the time you get you know into the 2040s through the same wires. You will have to at some point do deeper upgrades of wires. But there is mm. no doubt that you need to look at um, those local zones. So. To, we deal with 16 local authorities. We've we've got over 60 meetings sort of penciled in with them to go through a clear process to try and look at what their plans are and to be able to plan out, well, when do we put the sensors in? How do we uh, establish where the pinch points are? Is it cheaper to put in battery storage? How do we get services uh, from the local community that are actually there to provide things? Uh, and yet yeah, you absolutely want to exhaust all those things before you just, you know, suddenly, as you say, go go laying copper or aluminium down the roads um, uh, to do that. But at some point, you're going to have to do some of that as well if we're going to see um, the same amount of uh, 
if we're going to see the, uh, 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 such a huge growth in the amount of energy going down there. I mean, fortunately, you can reconductor a lot of these things, but all of that does does, does take work. And I, th- I think all we've got to recognise, John, is that, that that this is a you know a twenty year program. What are the things that we can really pick off? over the next decade which is what we're focusing on here um and also i think we've got to acknowledge that government isn't going to have a lot of money which is why we need to attract money from um from from private sources if at all possible so it it doesn't Mm -hmm. cost uh it's not costing the public purse and then secondly that jobs issue um which of these sort of things gives the best bang for buck in terms of generating uh more indigenous jobs to support the economy yeah. Just briefly on that, you said you said your project's a shovel ready. Let's just say T2 signed off 2.4 billion spend program. How quickly can you get people working on those projects? You know, is it, is it within three months? Is it within two years? Just from a stimulus perspective. So for the for the two point four, probably for something just over three billion, uh, and we were actually going around this internally yesterday. Uh, we have plans in place so that we'll recruit up to the level that we can deliver from the first of April next year. We could deliver that through a three billion plus program. If it went a lot more than three billion, uh, and that's perfectly possible, as I said, there's, there's at least as much again there. Um, then we'd have to be working harder at doing that, and and that's why we want to have the discussions now. Uh, I'm I'm sure that's also true the other two big tra- transmission operators uh, a grid and sp yeah okay one so there's another potential tension in the green print that i see which is around the so you've had you, you've advocated net zero in the power system by 2040 which i mean at least from from my perspective is the is the year that's basically consistent with Paris. You know, if, if, if GB is going to be net zero by 2050, well, the power system should probably be about a decade ahead. But you've also, you're building the newest CCGT plant on the system, uh, combined cycle gas turbine, uh, which is positive carbon emissions. Um, and now presumably you're expecting that to last more than 20, 20 years. Um, how, how do they square? How, how do you square them, the, the plan and the, and the investment in, in KB2? Yeah, look, I, th- I think that's a good question. I, th- I think uh, I think there are two elements to it. One, there's a there's a transition. So so taking off um, taking off the system, the far higher uh, carbon emitting, far less efficient plant is important, um, and that'll be the that that's definitely going to be the um, uh, the most efficient plant in Europe. Um, so and it's also going to be pretty flexible as well. The ramp rates on it. Uh, look flexible. I won't quote any of them now because uh, uh, us and Siemens will no doubt be testing those hard um, over the next year or so. But we expect that um, ultimately to be the most efficient and one of the most flexible plants around. It's in a great location in terms of uh, in terms of that um, eastern zone uh, for for looking at carbon capture and storage. Uh, we're we're a key member with another uh, a number of other very big industry players at looking at carbon capture and storage over there. We've got a lot of room on the Keepy site, and whether it's Keepy two or or even the Keepy three um, that you develop as a, a you know as a fully uh, a fully capture capture done piece of kit that'll be down you know at less than 50 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour emissions mm-hmm. um i think is uh it, you know that's a mute point equally uh we're looking with technology providers like siemens at over the next decade how do you get um to you know 20 30 percent hydrogen burning then maybe 70 then maybe 100 percent 
by changing the burners, changing compressors and things like that. So it has a lot of retrofitability to it, which is probably not a, a proper word, but hopefully you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and that's where we've got to be. So our thermal business is very clear. It only has a future in our group and a future for funding if it, it has a clear path to net zero. And we, while all the technology isn't there today, we, we clearly see routes for getting there and we're putting investments and teams together one on the CCUS side, and secondly on the hydrogen burning technology side. And I'd, I'd be surprised um, if Humber or Teesside, and, and, and therefore one of the ones close to that power station, doesn't hopefully win something if we get a couple of projects going on that side of the country, um, and we get an opportunity um, to then really show what we can do with that piece of kit. So I, I think it... it uh, it helps in the short term, but I think it's more, it's hopefully more future proof to more forward looking than people might think on the face of it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And, and I suppose 50 grams a kilowatt hour that compares to about 500 for unabated. So it's, um, so you're getting rid of most of the, most of the carbon with that, with that retrofit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. There's no nuclear in the green print. Why not? So this is a, this is a big part of government strategy. It's obviously delivers a, a large amount of zero carbon electricity to Great Britain at the moment. Uh, why didn't you include it? So we're not a nuclear generator. I think we have a lot less knowledge there. Um, as you say, government clearly think it has a role to play. It's probably, you know, they've placed one enormous bet on a, you know, a, t- a 20 billion pound first asset there uh, that has yet to come through. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it will. Um, I, you know, as I say, I think it's, it's got a role to play, but for us, if you look at what we've done um, offshore, has come in there and uh, and uh, and blown it away in terms of costs. Um, and equally, I think we can get CCUS and possibly hydrogen there as well um, uh, as being entirely competitive, but obviously rather more flexible. So while it's part of the mix, I don't think it's the answer for everything. It's not our area of expertise, and I think we need to focus on uh, the real renewables that can generate huge amounts and at far, far lower proven costs, and also start to look at the far more flexible bits of kit that the system's going to need as well, uh, which we think can be cost competitive. And, you know, we certainly be working hard to try and demonstrate that um, over the coming years. But particularly, I think as we run run into COP26 next year, it seems like an ideal opportunity to showcase what the UK can do on on carbon capture and storage. Yeah. Yeah. One other one other aspect of the of the green print that I think I thought maybe didn't quite gel with SSE strategy is or historical strategy possibly is the is the um seems like there's a big reliance on CFDs and, and government contracts. You know, I think I think at one point in there talks about CFDs not just for renewables but for uh, repowering renewables, so ones that ones that exist but perhaps extending the life for storage. Uh, for low carbon, which I assume gas falls into that category, is this a? I mean, I think there's a debate about the role of markets in the in the electricity system. But this is this a sort of resignation that government's going to have a bigger role to play as a counterparty in getting us towards net zero. 
Uh, look, I think there's a, a, some interesting points. And when I reflect on government and roles to play, it's, it's interesting at the moment that we've got a government that's probably been more interventionist than any, any, any government for possibly you know, a century, two or more um, in, in the economy generally. Uh, and I think we probably have to acknowledge that a little bit in our thinking. Um, but if we go back to the specifics uh, on the CFD, I think markets at a macro level have changed. We've, we've seen a really, really successful creation of offshore uh, wind markets markets with initially rocks and CFDs um, uh, and, and now auctions. And so I think the UK has to continue to want to be flexible as we evolve and go forward in what will be a very, very substantial change if we get to the 40 gigawatts by uh, by 2030. And we, you know, but by then we'll be well passing no coal and we'll have very, very little uh, CCGT, I suspect, that isn't uh, isn't unabated or in some way running on a bit of hydrogen and other things. So it, I, I, I just see this market evolving, and as you see, um, as you see more and more support mechanisms in there, I think you just need to be careful that you're that you're not seeing uh, stranded costs um, uh, for some things, and you're continuing to bring investors into that market. So. Uh, Given the success that we've had with these instruments, I think they we need to continue to move them forward and try and make sure that as the as the system heads towards net zero and it's more difficult to get a, a price for carbon in the uh, in the energy sector, um, and indeed it's more difficult to know in a world where you've got low marginal costs uh, how you're going to set the price for energy. That we continue to look at how we evolve the market to give investors the confidence to grant capital um, for building these assets and building more assets at a very, very low rate. Um, I think confidence in the market is important. That that generates the low funding costs and that'll perpetuate um, lower costs for consumers ultimately. So it's, it's how you get that right. Um, at, at the moment, I think is the right time given how long these market structure uh, debates tend to go on for to start having that 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 debate once we're clear about what the ambition is uh, and i'm very much hoping that that, uh, that this government and this country will be really ambitious about what it does on the yeah. green economy interesting okay yeah i mean what to some extent what i've heard heard there which i think if you've been through the 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 market design discussions of the last decade is yeah we we could waste we could waste half a decade redesigning the market when we've got tools tools that exist at the moment that that, that seem to be working reasonably well. Yeah, but um, I, I, I do. There's probably updates required. I think there is more thought required now to look out into the 2030s uh, and early 2040s and what the, what the what the overall system will look like and what market designs are going to work to continue to encourage the outcomes that government want. Yeah. Could, could I ask, that's not a bad segue. What I like to do at the end of the podcast is just ask you about a few concepts in our industry and ask you whether you think they're overrated or underrated. Uh, so I've got three concepts here and the, and the first one segues naturally from, from what we were just discussing. So the first concept is the role of markets in the future electricity system. Do you think the role of markets in the future electricity system is overrated or underrated? Uh, probably underrated. Uh, I think uh, th- there's a clear need to encourage investment and and sort of uh, low cost investment uh, where possible. So therefore, having clear rules and giving confidence you're never going to have an energy market that's completely disassociated with politics um, and therefore 
you need um, stable structures put in place over long periods of time. Uh, markets get into trouble for all sorts of reasons. You, you know, you only have to look at the machinations in, you know, the oil and gas market following uh, following a little bit of a, um, uh, a sort of playground tiff between Russia and Saudi Arabia that then gets exacerbated out of out of uh, anybody's imagination of what might happen by 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 COVID. So there's there's all sorts of things can happen um but i think uh i think markets are important and understanding those markets and developing them properly um even in fairly heavily regulated businesses you know but talk about competition in networks and things like that and to, to an extent that's right but it's where networks can be regulated and where you can have competition in providing services and things of that nature but certainly for the build of um offshore wind nuclear CCUS, um, you know, all of those need their priming and CCUS needs its initial mm. investment. But at the moment, it's very clear that wind's winning on the price front. Um, yeah. You know, and the uh, question then is how much base load you need and how much flexibility do you need out of the thermal plant with CCUS on it? Um, so the market structure is important there. Yeah. And I mean, hydrogen seems like a very good example. It's sort of, you know, someone needs to decide when to produce hydrogen via electrolysis and and someone needs to decide when to burn it in a in a power station and and prices are pretty good you know market prices are pretty good at telling people what what to do i'm not sure i'd be very confident if it was if it was a central government government saying when to do each of those things yeah and uh, and and you need to create that market because hydrogen probably looks better for um for, for sort of larger vehicles about you know vans trains ships things of that nature if you want low carbon fuel for those those kind yeah. of uh, for those kind of heavy goods transport things, then you know uh, electricity and massive battery packs may not be the best way to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the second concept is policy certainty. I think I know what you're going to say on this one, but policy certainty for power sector in investments. Uh, do you think policy certainty for power sector investments is overrated or underrated? And just because everyone always says it's underrated, I I, I would just kind of kind of slight slight premise here i think is that you know people the private sector is often the first one to tell government when they've got something wrong and they should change a policy as as well um so i i, I every time someone says underrated i slightly feel for 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 government who are, who are trying to sort of in a very uncertain and fast moving world uh change things but not too much but but anyway i don't i, I didn't yeah, mean to preempt I, I, your answer Do yeah you think- no no i no, well look you guessed it right, first of all. Um, yeah. But I, but I, I, I think it's um, if if you said consistency as well, that might be that might be a yeah. good way of looking at it. I I just think it, it is really important to have certainty and consistency. Um, and we've seen right now, um, you know, sea green was a more difficult process with only having a forty percent CFD uh, than we would have liked because you know because you see this huge crash in prices, so it makes mm. buyers more nervous. So. Um, you know, consistency of understanding what goes out is what drives lower cost of capital and uh, and brings people in. And then that gives lower costs for the industry over a period of time and makes consumers feel happier and ultimately politicians feel happier. So I, I think we don't want to be worrying about individual budgets um, affecting things. I think, you know, the long term carbon price, which we've not um, which we've done this well not to 
not to harp on about too much uh, so far doing this uh, doing this chat is really really important i think um this is about taking carbon out of the atmosphere or stopping emitting lots of it so, you know so let's focus on the piece there um getting the carbon price right and having certainty but also consistency of how we're looking at it is is important and we're we're here making you know they're not even 15 year investments in reality they're they're, they're they're 25 35 year investments that's the reality of of how long you're building these bits of kit for or how long they're capable of running for and so that that is why i'm not sure you could ever uh, do anything other than underrate it really um yeah. but uh, i'm not being critical of government uh, about it it's, it's it's i think it's just a fact of life that we live with at the moment that you, you always need to come back to that and we should all be mindful of it yeah 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 um okay good a final concept is um the benefits of european power market integration do you you know people often talk about you know spanish solar and you know nordic hydro and integrating markets and trading and things like that do you think the benefits of european power market integration are overrated or underrated so I'll I'll kind of put this one in the middle. I'm not sure they're either because it, it it probably depends. You know, those people who go on non about them, they've got to realise there are realities of individual country politics and how that plays out with other countries, uh, no matter how. Um, yeah. integrated and unified the european union may seem um yeah. if the uh, lights go out the prime minister loses his job so, yeah. so we're not going to trust the french we're as trustworthy as they are uh, I, I, I was advised by Kevin McCall not to make comments about prime ministers and presidents <laughs> okay. and things like that so I, so, so I may have to duck that one john but yeah, okay. I, I, but, but but look you're 100 percent Right. I, th- I think it's important that we have trading um, and, and, and that there is as much harmony and integration across the markets as possible because it's going to lower costs and provide greater security of supply. But, but equally, you've got to be aware of uh, exactly what you've said, which is there are political realities in all of this um, that mean interconnectors aren't really worth all they're cracked up to be worth at times. You know, they can provide arbitrage, but when the chips are down, which way is the power flowing, basically, because chances are chips may be down on both sides. Um, And I think think that's important. But look, I... I personally, I would advocate for us trying to stay close to Europe um, to, to build up a sensible amount of interconnection um, and just figure out what we physically really need them for, how we really value them. But let's, but let's just, just, just acknowledge the real politic, which I think you put very nicely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, that's a great point to conclude. Um, so, so we've clearly got a lot to get on with as an industry, and, and thank you, um, SSE, I suppose, for, for laying out at least one, one version of how we might crack on with it. Um, Alistair, thanks again for, for joining me today and, and sharing your expertise. It was, um, it, it, was a, it, was, it was it was a pleasure having you on. Okay. No, that's, that's great, John. And we hope to uh, interact with you and anybody else who's, who's got some views on this. Uh, this, is, this is about all of us building, uh, building something really good and strong for the country. And, uh, and, and we need to have all of us working together on it. So, uh, so, so delighted to do it. And okay. hopefully it sparks the right sort of debate. Great. Thanks, Alistair. Cheers, John. That was Aurora's chief executive and co-founder, John Federson, speaking to Alistair Phillips-Davis. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.